0: podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, we're going to be dealing with a topic that I found really boring to read, and so I'm going to try to give it to you guys in a condensed and hopefully entertaining form. We're going to talk about taxes and changes to the tax system in Britain from about 1700 to 1900-ish. Now, taxes are, of course, incredibly boring, and even more than boring, they are painful. When we have to pay taxes, it hurts, but taxes are incredibly important to making a modern government work, because it's what pays for everything, and to the extent that the modern world is made modern, stable, nice, by the government, then taxes are an incredibly, incredibly important part of it john brewer in a seminal book that we're not reading today on the excise tax calls it the sinews of power the strings that hold the state together we're going to be talking about two different kinds of tax systems of course you know this distinction is a little bit arbitrary but it's going to help us get to the end and that is the 18th century british tax system which we can call the fiscal military state and then the 19th century tax system which we might call the delegating market state okay so let's talk about the 18th century tax system first we've touched on this a number of times so it should be familiar if you're listening to every single episode which i don't think people are so the thing that happens is because of the increased costs of war in the 18th century and Britain's increased involvements in war, the government needed a way to establish huge amounts of money at short notice. The solution was something called the funded debt. We've called it the giant pool of money. This is government debt that is paid by a particular set of taxes. So, you have a particular tranche of loans, whose interest is paid by a particular set of taxes. And there's three big taxes that you should know about. The land tax, the assessment tax, and the excise tax. The land tax, duh, is a tax on land, but it was pretty inefficient because it was assessed by local people who didn't really have that much of an incentive to assess their, you know, local dignitaries' manor as something incredibly expensive so they would get taxed. The assessment tax is on stuff like mail servants and windows, things that were meant to be a stand-in for luxury. But then we get to the big one, the excise tax. Taxes on consumable goods like coffee, beer, soap, and paper. This was one of the most effective levers of taxation in the 18th century. Why? Because it was run by a disinterested professional bureaucracy who themselves did not benefit from their tax gathering. It was also incredibly and heavily monitored. When we read John Brewer, who writes all about this, we'll go into it in a lot of detail, but I will tell you one tiny bit of detail about the excise men because it's incredibly fascinating. They would basically walk around cities or particular counties every day going to merchants and they would assess a tax based on how much stuff they had, and they walked around with these big books in which they would record the taxes that they took, and it was so busy and so quick, they had had specially made inkwells that fit into the lapels of their coats, okay? So, the excise tax. But these taxes, particularly the excise tax, meant that Britain was able to raise money on short notices, which meant ships and soldiers. It also meant that the political nation was united because everybody who invested in the government debt had an incentive to keep the government stable. This meant that the moneyed interests, the landed interests, and the politicians all broadly wanted the same thing. They did not want the state to fall. They wanted to keep everything going as it had been going so that they could get whatever goodies they got. The moneyed interest, of course, got their payouts every year from their investment in the debt. The landed interests retained their local supremacy, their big gigantic Downton Abbey manors, and they also got the corn laws which meant that exports of grain were given bounties which made them really, really profitable, which gave them a giant pool of money. And the politicians, of course, got to rule everybody. Everybody was happy. But this wonderful fiscal military state was put to the test in the Napoleonic Wars. This was like World War II. This was a huge international war that lasted for over a decade, and it put a ton of pressure on the fiscal military state. The debt skyrocketed. And during the time, from about 1799 to 1815, the state was forced to make a new kind of tax, something that is going to be pretty familiar to us, an income tax. But after 1815, when peace finally came, people were pissed off. Because Everybody realized that they were paying their taxes to keep afloat the giant pool of money and the landed interests and the politicians and the Anglican priesthood, what is called the old corruption, this big gaggle of people who profited off the system. Debt was huge. Debt payments were half of the tax burden. 50 pence off of every pound or whatever it was before decimal currency was spent on the the, the the interest payments for debt. Debt stood at twice the gross national product. This led to a ton of unrest, specifically because the taxes that people had impacted people unfairly. Most of the taxes, remember, were coming from the excise, and that impacted consumers more than it did rentiers. It impacted people who the majority of their income was spent on beer, bread, paper, candles, all those things that the excise hit. So the solution came in the 1840s, starting with 1842, and it was a combo. The first is this reconfiguration of the state. The state is no longer this honorable thing that goes out and invades places and conquers places. No, the state is committed to efficiency, probity, equality, and transparency. And you have the principle of fiscal confinement. The state is going to try to stop spending money. It's a laissez-faire state. And the big shift comes from the change from indirect taxes on consumption, like the excise taxes or in particular duties, to direct taxes on income. And that's why we start things in 1842, because that's the beginning of the revamped income tax. And the idea behind the income tax is that everybody pays the same proportion of money of their income in taxes to the state. And this was seen as transparent and fair, and it allowed for the government to have a much more effective handle on economic activity so that it could tax it. Administratively, the important bit to remember is that this started the trend of the British government having annual budgets, and the annual budget became this big bit of political theater that would be discussed and debated and voted upon, and itself would become a kind of test of confidence in the government. And there were a whole bunch of weird little legislative things that meant that this was meant to be not onerous. It wouldn't bury people in the future in debt that was incurred right now. And this led to a reduction in government debt from about 25% of GDP to about 10% of GDP for the entire century. And Victorian era government was run on the cheap. It was run efficiently. But It wasn't entirely effective, even though tax rates were kept low, even though there was this myth that the political nation was equally represented in the amount of money that they paid to the state. And that comes because of the needs of the poor people. The amount of money that British state spent on poor relief declined from about 3% of GDP in 1820 to 0.7% 0.7% of GDP in 1880. This means that the very, very poor, the amount of relief that they can get is slashed. And it also means that the burden of taking care of people goes from the central government instead to the local governments. Okay, And this is, is part of the reason why British cities during the Victorian era were so shitty. And I don't use that euphemistically. This is why they had so much trouble provisioning clean water, establishing law and order, and doing all these other things, because the entire onus of the Victorian state was to generate a certain amount of expectations, transparency, and information about the running of government, and then let it go to civil society and localities. Also, this extended to colonies, which were forced to cover the costs of their own colonization. The most egregious moment of this comes after India is made a crown colony in 1856. This means that India goes from just being kind of the fiefdom of the East India Company to actually being an official colony of Britain. And when that happens, the British government people who come in find the finances in shambles. There's a huge amount of debt, and it's really unclear where this debt is going to be actually paid from. Their solution is to do stuff that would be very, very, very familiar to people in the 20th century when third world countries get their debt restructured from the IMF, cut costs and increase taxation. The most symbolic moment of this is the salt tax, which we might remember from Gandhi's great salt march to the ocean protesting it. So in India all salt was taxed and this tax was spent not on building roads, not on building railways, not on education, but rather to pay down the debt, to pay off the debt that was funded by the giant pool of money. Thanks for listening today. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for his wonderful music and Duncan Barton for his image. If you like us, please rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on social media. Go to the website at historian.live. Like our Facebook group at Facebook. And also light a votive candle in my honor. Post it on Reddit. Tell your friends. Um, Thanks very much, and I'll see you guys.